0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. We consider looking, uh, continue looking, that is, at Paul's letter to the Colossians today, chapter 3. I'll just back up and begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 3. We looked at the first four verses last time. We'll go forward and consider especially the main thought of verses 5 through 11. Listen to God's holy word. This is the revelation of the one true God given through the minds of men, but it is from God. Since then, you have been raised with Christ... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. May God use this word to encourage us and instruct us this morning. A presbytery meeting of just two weeks ago, May 17th, became a meeting and a day that was rather seared on the memories of all ministers and ruling elders present. Pastors of our church and four ruling elders were there, along with similar representations of other churches of a nearby region. It was not a day simply for ordinary routine or, yes, sometimes it is, dull church business. Not this day. The morning began with a sermon exhorting men about guarding their hearts and their minds against sexual temptation. It was a very direct and helpful sermon. Then followed a seminar put on by the ministry group that we call Harvest USA, a cause we support, in which a man who had been chained in secret ways to the use of pornography in his life for about 30 years gave a remarkable testimony about the power of God to open up his life and change him and forgive him and set him free. Well, the interesting thing was that those opening matters were not at all originally planned to coincide with any business that we were doing later in the day. But then in the afternoon, we faced a matter of importance, a disciplinary issue that had come to light in a minister's life. And let me say there may be a few people present who know the man's name. I'm not going to disclose it. He doesn't live in our county. Don't worry about guessing his identity. That's not what matters. Rather tragically, this particular teaching elder minister, as we call him in our denomination, had committed repeated acts of immorality with a woman, not his wife, ten years earlier, and had covered that up effectually, Until recently, it had become known. And the man stood and said, I'm sorry. I think he was sincere. But I'm not sure he understood the whole dimensions of sorrow and pain and harm that his sin had brought upon others beside himself. There were rather scandalous dimensions of this sin that simply could not be passed over lightly. And so last week, he was officially deposed from ordained ministry. He will get counseling. We will treat him as a brother in need, but he will not be in the office of a teaching elder and a minister because of what his sin has brought on him. He needs to better confront the harm he has done to others in the honor of Christ. A tragic thing. Why do I mention it? Two reasons, I think. One, it is important for all of you to know that our congregation belongs to an association of churches that is of the kind that tries hard to have integrity in these matters. And we will not shield spiritual leaders from a full accounting for abuse of a position of public leadership or trust over God's flock. But my deeper reason is probably occasioned by our text today, And the way what took place in this minister's life so tragically shows what happens when you do not act in the manner that Paul urges Christians to do in bringing by real repentance and examination and prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit to work and to change in us a dealing with the kinds of sin and immorality that can so easily come into any life. This man ignored it. He covered it up for a decade. But as the Scripture says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. I want to remind you that the main premise that Colossians has developed up till now is this, and I emphasized it last time, the fact that we really, we Christians, that is, really did die alongside Christ on His cross to an enslavement to our sinful nature. Yes, we sin. That doesn't stop when we become Christians, but we die to a complete enslavement to that nature. Our relationship to that nature is different. We're in a new position. In fact, Paul has insisted in this Colossian letter that we were raised up with Christ into newness of life, new power, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, more than just as a figure of speech or a metaphor, applies to us. His life is begun in us. And so, last time we were told Christ is our life, and we should look to where He is today, enthroned at the right hand of God, and understand that His ruling power there rules in our life. (coughs) And we can look to Him for change of our hearts and our minds and our behavior. We can actually go to war against shameful behaviors that remain in our life, that tempt us, that would pull us down because we have the new power of the risen Lord and the forgiveness and grace of God to deal with these things when we come in true repentance to Him. Now, beginning at Colossians 3.5, today our emphasis is on some of these sinful choices and temptations that are still very common in our life. And yet they're toxic. They they may be common, but that doesn't mean they're harmless. They're things that must not be lightly tolerated or brushed over. They must not just be pushed aside and someone say, "Oh well, I'm a Christian. I've accepted Jesus. I don't have to worry about, you know, the result of toying with that behavior." These are ruinous things that require from Christians what our society today would call a zero-tolerance policy as we see them coming into any contact at all in our life. When I was a boy, my friends and I often played games that involved guns, plastic guns, that is. They didn't shoot real bullets. We played cowboys. We played police and robbers. We played soldiers and all kinds of things, and we always had our plastic guns, you know, we were really good at making the noises that guns make with our mouths, and we blasted away at each other, no bullets ever flew, but there was sort of an unwritten rule in these games when you had a sort of a direct aim at somebody, and you made the gun noise, and that person could see that it was aimed right at him, and in other words, the bullet, quote-unquote, hit them, they were supposed to go down. Now, there were often arguments that would be like, you're already dead. Lay down. And he didn't want to lay down because he didn't think he'd been shot. Well, that's not so different from our new identity in Christ. There are many things that are, in one sense, dead to us. The chains of slavery to those things are gone, and yet they haven't laid down and they still grab us, and they still take hold of us. And there's a death struggle at work in which we must be actively engaged in assisting some things to be put to death that God has told us are utterly unworthy and unprofitable in our lives. I have just two points today, and the first covers verses 5 through 8 of, of Colossians 3. I would ask you to look at a A comprehensive listing here, not of everything that could have been listed, but the things that God put into the mind of Paul to list as worthless idols which we are licensed to kill. Worthless idols which we are licensed to kill. You know, post offices, maybe they still do this. I'm not in a post office that often anymore, but post offices used to have a bulletin board where they would put up the 10 most wanted criminals in the United States. Do they still do that today? I guess they still put those pictures up. And you go in, of course, here's a, here's a place where many people move about, and they're likely to see these. And here's the ugly guy sort of scowling at the camera. Those are never pretty shots. You know, Criminals don't get nice, happy shots taken of themselves. But here's the 10 most wanted. If you see these people, contact the FBI. Consider them armed and dangerous. Well, it's almost as if Paul is doing that here in our text today, as in two different places here, verses 5 and 8, he's going to list some things that are among the most wanted criminals that prey upon a Christian's life. And they're in two different categories. One is the whole category of unbridled sexual licentiousness, The other is in what I would call avaricious lying, abusing the truth, abusing the way we speak to other people. These things were just as much realities in in Paul's first century world as they are today. In fact, that was a time when society, the Roman world, was in decline and there are certain characteristics that people have found are true when, when major societies are in decline, and our society is in decline, whether we like to acknowledge it or not. Not so very different from Rome. There are certain things that are true when a society is going down, and the moral power of a society's foundation is no longer exerting itself. One is a an ob, ob, observation that Sexual license becomes more and more rampant in such a society. I don't have to go back and trace what went on in Rome and is going on today as moral boundaries are simply removed. I had part of an argument on the car radio coming in even early this morning about how uh, we have to change marriage in the state of Pennsylvania, and it's all about civil rights. No, it's not about civil rights. It's about morality no longer existing. And here we are in a society where these things are just pressing in on us, and they set up a kind of dictatorship enslaving even the minds of people. When we recognize these things, Paul is saying we must strip them off. We must violently react against them. No half measures will do. And he gives the first list in verse 5, and it's a list about various kinds of sensuality or sexual indulgence. And I'm not going to exegete each word here. Why does Paul give so many words when maybe one would have done? They each have a, maybe a slight nuance of different meaning, but let's take the whole picture rather than try to, you know, extend the meaning of each word here. He says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and then interestingly he says, and greed, which is idolatry. We are drowning in this today. Is it possible that anyone here does not know that? We are absolutely drowning in our television and our films, in sexual innuendo, in blatant acts of extramarital sex of every kind. We are so exposed to it that we all are desensitized to the degradation that it brings, and we're desensitized to the, to the violence and the violation of people that is involved. I hear pretty regularly now estimates on a national level that say that somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of all men in America have some level of dealing with or viewing pornography. I have to be frank with you. I think those figures are high. I don't think they're high because I'm naive or stupid. I just think they're high because those estimates tend to go that way. But let it be clear. This is a runaway problem, not just in the general society, but even in the church of Jesus Christ and among God's people. When people sin sexually, the real reason is because their heart is seeking comfort and delight in something that lust momentarily promises it will provide. It never really provides it, but it promises it. And it's a behavior that is both self-indulgent and self-destructive. I'm so fascinated with the way Paul ties the word greed to this list. It doesn't seem like it fits there as you read. You know, immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Well, what is sexual lust but a, a kind of greed says, more sex is better. Who cares what the restraints are? Let's get all the pleasure we can get from wherever we can get it. And this little god of immorality begins to reign and rule in the life. And even the desire itself turns into a sour thing as it degrades other people into no more than an attractive body for a temporary look. Romans 1 had it so right when it said, People determinedly reject God and and it's it's almost an inevitable process that He gives them over to lives and one of the characteristics of their ungodly life is sexual, losing all the boundaries of a sexual kind. Now it may seem that today things have freed up so well in our society as some would see it, you can have this and have few consequences. Who knows? what a man does with his computer screen at home and privacy. But Paul warns here in verse 6. He says, God's wrath is coming for these things. Now, we know the wrath of God is not a temper tantrum. God is not capricious in His anger or vindictive like we are, you know, sort of sitting there doing nothing and then saying, okay, I've had enough. Now I'm going to go out and pound those people. No, God's wrath is something perfectly measured, it is perfect holiness measured out in a perfect way against all that is not holy. And it will, it will be satisfied. The Scripture says this many times. An example would be Ephesians five. Be sure of this, Paul wrote there, no immoral, impure, or greedy person for such a one is an idolater, same language as here, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, is that saying somebody who goes over the line one time, two times in their life and sins this way and seeks pardon from God and comes and repents and is restored will not inherit the kingdom of God? No. It's talking about the person whose life is given over in this direction, whose habitual behavior knows nothing else. The indictment is is against the one who has been taken over by sensuality and sexual indulgence until that is what rules in the life, so that the person can simply say, well, I, good grief, these are just my civil rights. This isn't a moral issue, and they don't even understand anymore. It is a moral issue. It goes right to the core of who God is and what he created man to be. And that kind of ruling idolatry of sexual license is absolutely contrary to people who we've been reading about here, whose life, verse uh, uh, 3 said in this same chapter, is hidden with Christ in God. How can you say my life is hidden with Christ in God, and yet I will have this compartment over here that is so blatantly against God and Christ? There's a second list here, and it seems probably not all that related. Verse 8 contains different behaviors. They they center on our speech. Rid yourselves of such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and don't lie to one another anymore, for you have taken off the old self. Boy, just as, as our understanding of God's sexual directions for fulfillment of sex within marriage matters so does the way we talk to each other people betray largely who they are by the manner of their speech and the content of their speech and isn't it an astonishing thing that people in the body of Christ Paul would say here can talk to each other and immediately you know start spouting off on the basis of rage and impure words or shooting little darts of malice at one another, showing that they haven't forgiven others in the body of Christ or, or even have a decent relationship with such people. What does that say about us? Can we say our life is hid with Christ in God and talk that way? Ephesians 4.25 adds again, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? What a startling lesson God gave. In the very beginning of the early church, this man and woman who came in and on basically a sworn oath told the apostles something that was untrue, and they died on the spot. And we've often said, you know, if everybody whose sworn oath was as false as that of Ananias and Sapphira, the world would not have anywhere near the population it has today. But what was God saying in that dramatic lesson? He was saying that truth-telling between believers is really serious, that truth should condition both the contents of what Christians say as well as the tone and the manner and the compassionate attitude in which we say things to one another. And so in both of these areas, sexual temptation and carelessness in speech, I believe Paul is calling us to a vigilant, alert state. If you want to use uh, maybe a flawed analogy, he's saying when these things get close to you or you see them beginning to interact with you, shoot on sight. Put them to death. You have a license from me to kill them because they are idols that are going to destroy you. They will kill you if you do not assist in their dying in your life. Well, how exactly do we do this? We could go on a long time, I suppose, and I don't intend this morning to try to offer a a complete therapy course for people caught in these behaviors, but there are some simple principles at least. And one is to simply deny such things even the least foothold of a first opportunity to have contact with us, especially in the sexual area. It's so important that you never get past step one to step two. But you say, rather, I will be so vigilant that when I recognize this, I will be like Joseph, and I will get up and run away! Because I know I cannot even indulge the first meeting with this temptation. I had occasion to talk with some men as a result of the presbytery issue I mentioned before about a code of personal ethics that I put on paper quite a few years ago, many years ago, before I became pastor here. It's about two pages long. And it involves considerable forethought and planning and I think biblical principles of things that I have learned and gleaned and that I had said as a a vow before God. This will be the code of ethics of my behavior with women in the ministry. And I've shared that with every one of our pastors as they've come on our staff. And we talk about it, and I say, now, men, you know, here's, here's what looks like a really legalistic program, but it, you need to take some program like this seriously because it's a zero-tolerance program that won't let you get the first step down the road of harm to yourself or to others. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, what did he say? Gouge it out. Gouge it out and throw it away. Now, obviously, that was very dramatic language. He isn't urging that people take sharp tools and start maiming their bodies. But he was saying, it is so important that if your eye is on the wrong things and consistently going in the wrong direction, you need radical action immediately or you will become captive to that. When Margaret Thatcher was prime minister of Britain and the terrorism problem was beginning to come to the fore in the world, she at one time made a a statement of a reaction against terrorism. Mrs. Thatcher said, We need to starve the terrorists of the oxygen of publicity. In other words, what if somebody set off a bomb at a pub in London or whatever, uh, and nobody paid any attention. There was no newspaper article. Nobody reported it. They wouldn't get what they were trying to achieve. Cut off the very thing that they're trying to achieve, she said. Well, I think there's something a little bit like that. If you men would think about treating pornography or, or any illicit sexual exposure in your life as if it was a terrorist, How far inside the front door of your home do you want to admit a terrorist? Do you want to say, well, just come in and sit in the living room and and be well-behaved there, you know? Don't, Don't stir up the family. Don't do anything to my children or my wife, but you can come in the front door. You wouldn't say that. And yet we will admit things a little way into our lives that have as much harmful intent as any terrorist. Men, there are so many things we can say. You turn that computer screen so everybody in the room sees it. Tell your wife if she doesn't know how to consult the computer history record that shows every website that's been visited and tell her, go check that, honey, once a week, because I want you to know what my activity on this computer has been. Enlist a friend with a similar problem and, and say, let's pray together once a month or whatever, or let's let's talk when we're really being dragged down. Bring accountability. Bring daylight into your life. You know, mushrooms have to grow in the dark. They don't grow out in the sunlight. We need to bring sunlight to these problems, and they can be dealt with, but they need to be cut off before they take the first real step. The problem so many times is not inability to change, especially if we will ask God for his transforming grace. It really is a rooted unwillingness to change. That's the problem. Sometimes we like to sit in our problem and stew and say, oh, I just can't help it. Is your life hid with Christ in God? Did you die with Christ and rise again to a new nature? If that's so, then there is available for the asking, yes, not without much effort and prayer and persevering, but there is available power to change these kinds of things in our lives. If only we were more convicted about the depth and power of the sin and passionate to be made like Christ, greater change of human character is indeed possible. Now, there's much more that could be said about those things, but let me pass on here to the second and final point that that really concerns verses 10 and 11 of our text. And we are turning a corner here that takes us closer to what we'll be looking at the next few weeks as we finish this epistle. Because now we are asked to seek a new self remade in Christ's image. Seek a new self remade in Christ's image. The text says... Put on the new self. You've been told what to put off. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. And then Paul adds, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. You might have felt that Paul sort of slipped back into rule book Christianity here for a moment. And, and, you know, he'd been talking about the grace of God and Christ and, New life and so on, and then he started shooting out rules. Well, he's not giving you rules to be saved by, we know that. He's giving you behaviors that can happen because you already are a new creature in Christ and you can obey God with new power as a new person. And you have entered into this process, the Bible calls sanctification, in which God, step by step, is helping us to shed our old worldly baggage and take on more and more of what recognizably belongs to Christ, a new creation. And it's take some effort from you, but you're not doing it alone. I remind you again of that great text, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what we've been talking about here. Don't you do something with fear and trembling if it says the wrath of God is coming against this? But you're not doing it by yourself for... That Philippians text says, it is God who works in you both to will and perform it. The image that God is aiming at in his people is that of his risen and glorified son, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.49 says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. We don't attain this simply by effort. It's a gift. But it's a gift we have to cooperate with and struggle in order to see God's work, putting to death our temptations and our lusts and opening the door to new character and the fullness of His Son at work in us. It's a matter of putting on as well as putting off, and we're going to talk about the putting on more next week. I think what verse 11 says as this particular text closes is this. You're not alone in this struggle. In fact, Paul in verse 11 describes the whole breadth of those who are new Christians from their ethnic origin, their social standing. And he says, for all these people, Christ is all and is in all. The same struggle is going on in the whole body of the church. For you to sit within the church and think I'm the only person that has this struggle is absurd. And in fact, it wouldn't be hard if you wanted it and you sought it for us to connect you with someone else in the body of the church who has the same struggle. There's an interesting point made with the one mention made here in verse 11 of a particular group of people, the Scythians. You see that in there? Who are they? The Scythians were a tribe who lived in the more northern territory of Asia Minor who at that particular time at least were known as among the most barbaric groups of people. Some would have said the Scythians are people who live like animals. Now, you hear what Paul's saying here? He's saying, even if you're a Scythian, even if you're one of these despised, untouchable people who live like animals, Christ may be in you bringing change and bringing new power to live differently. If that's true for Scythians... It's true for everyone here. And I close where I began today. I told you a somber thing about our presbytery deposing a minister from ordained office who failed to keep control over the daunting power of lust in his life and covered it up. But I challenge you. Are you a person who might also be living some kind of a double life like that man? You don't have to be an ordained church officer, but you might sit in church every week and you live in this compartment, the Sunday morning compartment, oblivious to the compartment of the rest of the week where some embedded power of sinful abuse has control over you. Maybe it's not sexuality. Maybe it's the way you speak. Maybe it's your angry, sarcastic character of put-downs and belittling other people. Well, you know, losing ordination to the ministry is a very serious thing. But remaining a blinded captive to ongoing sin when Jesus Christ died and rose so that those controlling impulses can be put to death is just catastrophic. And it doesn't have to be that way. Not for any of you. Let our final word come from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul wrote there, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience. Our Savior has unlimited patience in working with you on these problems and unlimited mercy. He did this as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. That includes you. Our Father, we ask that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Bring us discontent where we have coddled things in our lives and said, nobody knows, it won't matter. Nobody will find out. Make us desperately uncomfortable about things that need to die. But then in your grace, grace that doesn't ask us to save ourselves by keeping rules, but grace that gives us new power and new lives to apply your mercy. Give us the strength we need to walk away at the first opportunity. Help us, O oh God. We are weak and you are mighty. For Jesus' sake, amen.